Hello! And welcome to Liars Live, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. At least that's the usual case. Tonight we are beset by disaster, with our theme of rack and ruin. We're putting the first decade of Liars League into a flat tailspin. It will crash. It will burn. We have six stories for you this evening. Three in the first half, three in the second. Sandwiched by an interval, and of course the infamous Liars League book quiz. Where, if you're clever enough and quick enough, you can win books. Now, the only other thing I have to say to you this evening is please silence or turn off your mobile phones. Any one of them could set off a tremor that swallows the whole Phoenix pub. Just as a warning. Right, our first story of the evening will be A Night at the Pinchio by Leonie Milner, read by Katie Dodd. Leonie lives in London. Credits include Liars League, Between the Lines, Cheap Flash and National Flash Fiction Day. A Night at the Pinchio is an extract from her novel In Progress, In Pursuit of Fortune, which begins in Rome in 1755. Katie won the Ronnie Schwartz Scholarship to the Oxford School of Drama and has appeared in over 30 productions in Oxford, Edinburgh and London. She's directed several plays, including Time Out Critics' Choice Comedy, The Dancing Bears, and prefers to be behind the scenes, but sometimes finds the lunch. Katie! Night at the Pincio by Leonie Milliner. Rome, March, 1755. When I am Mr. Hope's wife, men will ask me, how did Rome look? I will say she burns, and her women are even more beautiful. Unpeeled, their skin glows with the fire of the torches hung from the cypress trees. I glimpse them from the window glass of Mr. Adams' coach as we pelter along the ridge above Rome, the mistresses among cypress groves in the almost dusk. Where is it, the place we go? I inquire, turning from the window. It is uncomfortable and jolting in Mr. Adams' coach. It is the more so because I must sit beside Mr. Hope and his incessant hand. The Pincio, Mr. Adam replies, but I know that. I know we go to the Pincio, but what place is it that burns so brightly that torch smoke hangs bilious over Rome, and men are in their sleeves and women in donkey masks? I introduce the Pincio to everyone through the catacombs. A most, says Mr. Adam, travel to the Pincio by road, but the path is steep and the cardinal's coach sticks in the mud after rain like this. Only those who know Rome well 
become by the tombs. Which is why we are in his coach, not mine, Mr. Hope murmurs in my ear. His breath stinks of the kipper we ate for supper. Mr. Adam tends to be a famous architect, Miss Dunbar. And all the ladies will be in undress, Mr. Adam says, regarding my aunt, Mrs. Wright, sat opposite me. In the narrow coach cabin, he tugs the wrap she has wound tightly around her shoulders. Mrs. Wright's wide mouth laughs, and she wraps Mr. Adam on his hand as if she toys with him. Miss Dunbar may go in undress, she says, turning to me, but my lungs will never bear the night, uh, the night air. I, I will be dead in a second, she says, and she pulls at my petticoat to make me sit back. Last week, Mr. Hope says, while his fingers stray, the cardinal had his mistress dressed as a donkey. She prayed at every fool on the hill. He is unpinning the bands at my neck, suggesting I remove my fichu. I am no donkey, I think, or fool. Mr. Hope, I remind him, stretching up out of his grasp, we came to regard the view. I lean forward to make as if I observe it out of the window, pull down the glass in the rattling coach so as to be out of Mr. Hope's way. There is no view from here, Miss Dunbar, Mr. Adams says. I am being led astray. I know there must be a view. We are on a ridge high above Rome. Through the torch smoke are domes, crucifixes, towers, all ablaze, golden in the melting dusk. But is that not St. Peter's? Says my aunt, Mrs. Wright, again. She has sat opposite me, pointing at the flight of steps we pass, the shadow of a triumphal arch, asking Mr. Hope if it is the Basilica of St. Peter. No, the Medici Villa, Mr. Adam corrects her, gesturing into the canopy. Abruptly, Mr. Hope's hand is removed. My skirt is smoothed. Beside me, Mr. Hope is removing his coat and Mr. Adam. Mr. Adam pulls his arms out of his embroidered red coat sleeves, the white linen of his shirt contrasting sharply against the red of his waistcoat. He takes his coat and lays it on his lap. My aunt is unconcerned. She is tapping her fan on Mr. Adam's wrist, asking him how she will make money buying antiquities and asking if she may remove them at will. Mr. Adam encourages her. He directs the coach to pull up and a sudden rush of air accompanies the opening of the door whilst we are still in motion. Smell of burning forest and pink. The torches hung from the trees all around discharge a fierce, pungent heat of burning pork fat disappearing fast into midnight blue. We stand at the edge of the road surrounded by raucous shrieks, and on the curl of the tinged air come snatches of pipes. Mr. Adam has his boy lift the lid to his coach box, a heavy lid with a stiff lock. Out comes a chisel and a mallet, and the boy brings it to him. 
We follow Mr. Adam, not far, into the darkening grove of cypress trees, and there, on the path, is the indentation of a tomb, stumps describing an entrance. Two steps in, a clear stream of water, and lying over it, a thousand-year face, features blurred in the creamiest of stone, eyes that yawn. Mr. Adam rolls up his shirt sleeves, places the chisel at the sarcophagus's neck. He stands astride the shaft. I see his muscles swell, tense in their attack. He prizes, with the coach boy's help, its carved edge. The boy's plump fingers are in the cracks Mr. Adam cannot cleave until the head is released from the woven acanthus and placed in my aunt's arms. The boy protecting it, wrapping it in oilcloth, she cradling it like a baby, rocking it. Salome, Mr. Adam is calling her. It is only a portion, a fragment, a face awoken from the undergrowth. Mr. Hope is beside me. He slips an arm around my waist. You are married, Mr. Hope. You have two wives, I remind him into his wig. His smile in return is uneven. The first is dead, the second chasing Flora in the Indies with a Colonel Monson, he retorts. In the growing dusk, his face collapses. He squeezes me tighter and seems to shrink into the darkness. I will marry you, Miss Dunbar, Mr. Hope declares, as if I already resist him. I will marry you, he tells my turned neck. Mr. Adam sees me shiver. My coat, he orders his boy, and the torch, he commands. And the boy, like a spark, darts rapidly through the trees in the direction of Mr. Adam's coach. We watch his back, curved with the effort of carrying Mrs. Wright's head. Careful! Mrs. Wright calls. I am not sure loud enough. The boy only seems to run faster. And then he is back, with an ember snaking in the woods, held aloft and jerking. The coat he gives to Mr. Adam. The torch he clutches. I hesitate. Mr. Adam holds out his coat for me to enter, holds it by the shoulders and lets it hang, the red silk lining radiant in the torch heat. I lift my hair and slip inside, my arms captured in Mr. Adam's two long sleeves. The silk is cold. There is no residue of his body heat. The cuffs dandle. Mr. Adam stands close to me to button me up, catching my shiver and stilling it. To press each button into its embroidered incision, Mr. Adam bends me, bends into me in his struggle with disc and thread. I see him pinch his lower lip, an impression of incisors on a swelling fissure, quickly subsiding. He pulls the collar up around my neck and rolls the cuffs to my wrist takes my upper arms and squeezes them. Then he pulls me. He takes me by the hand and pulls me. Mr. Wright, too, and Mr. Hope. 
they take us by our hands and run us into the catacomb, downwards, so we run faster. Mrs. Wright could object, I think, but she is screaming, screaming with delight and the pretense of reluctant feet, but not so dragging she is left behind. The pipe music comes louder. It comes not from the cypress trees, I realise, but from further within the tomb, where there are bodies too, laughing, masked and fleeting. The boy beards. Cast in darkness, a bearded man somersaults. Right up close, bells sing in a circle on his ankles. There is a leg illuminated. A hand outstretched, its flexed palm grinds into my face. It smells this hand of sweat and men and flesh. A coin is thrown. This is not my coin. The boy knows where he is headed. He is sure-footed with Mr. Adam's torch. I feel the earth beneath my slipper, a graveled incline. The dead, I presume, line the walls. Mr. Adam's hand holding mine slips in its sweat and is lost. Mr. Hopes clasps me tighter. I look for Mrs. Wright in the utter terrifying darkness, but I cannot see her. All I can see is the flame moving away from me. A burletto dances past, a donkey. The donkey I see in silhouette is being fed an apple by her cardinal. I hear the bray. The hand clasping mine entwines his fingers in my fingers and there is no Mrs. Wright. My thighs press against a stylobate, but my palms resist, cupping frozen stone. It crumbles as I am pushed against it. My back arching on the column's fluted shaft, it is Mr. Hope. I can smell his face paint, that sick scent of fish. His teeth are on my jaw, nipping my skin. He takes advantage of the dark, I think, but I am not bred to displease. I moan. I think it a gesture of resistance, but he hears compliance. I arch my neck, throw back my chin to remove my jaw from his teeth, and he sighs as he sinks against me, sinks lower into my breasts. I feel him, bone hard and skinny against me. I know what is coming and I do not like it. I do not want a torch to illuminate this struggle of mine. It would implicate me. But I do not want Mr. Hope. I heave upwards, force him off. I am strong. Possibly I am stronger than him, but I must not cause offence. He is a wealthy man. I laugh him off. Say, come, Mr. Hope, we must find Mr. Adam. I keep hold of his hand and pull him away, but he pulls me again, more forcefully. This time I have no choice. His lips are on mine, his hand up my skirt, between my legs. His fingertips drag against the flesh of my upper thigh. I will marry you, he says. Not a proposal but a declaration of intent. I look for Mr. Adam. 
I now I am pushed against dirt, crumbs of it in my hair. Mr. Hope trembles with the exertion. I feel through my fists clutching the stiff coat fabric on his back, his effort, the release of his frustration, the tearing at my skin as he quivers to say my name. Oh, Miss Dunbar, he stutters. Oh, oh, Miss Dunbar. My hand slips under his wig, onto his hot, prickly skull, as if to calm him, as if to reassure him. I stroke him. He breathes onto my neck, my neck, encased in Mr. Adams' coat. Hot breath coming more steadily now. I worry a torch will come. I worry a donkey will bray at us and bring the crowds and I will be ruined. I worry Mr. Adam will know. I stroke Mr. Hope's cheek. Laugh again at him, gaily. Pat him on the shoulder to make him move, make him get off me. I'm glad it is dark and I do not have to see his ridiculous fumbling. Pretend somehow to be tender as Mr. Hope blunders with his breeches. I need to blow my nose, wipe my eyes. I use the cuff of Mr. Adams' coat. Wipe my eyes again from the tears that are streaming from them, and again. The wool is soft, and it is this that I will remember when men ask me in London, how did Rome feel? Soft as the red wool that Batoni paints men in, I will say. As red as the fire in my groin when Rome burns. And when we are out of the blackness and into the Pincio, among the sculptures and the mistresses, Mr. Adam ahead of me is solicitous. He asks, did I like the catacomb? And I say, yes. Thank you, Katie. Our second story of the evening will be on depression by Joshan Espian de Martin, read by Jim Cody. Joshan was born in Brighton. He's a writer and film director. As a writer, Jim creates far too much marketing copy and not enough short stories. Luckily, he's able to scratch that itch by reading other people's stories aloud to a raucous audience. He's been named Lies League Most Valuable Player twice, as a writer in 2015 and as an actor in 2016. Jim! On Depression by Joshan Esfandiari Martin. There was a village terrorized by a giant. It could come at any hour, beating its chest to fall with greed upon the villagers' crops. They constructed a ditch and palisades, 
but neither kept the beast out. It marched with ease across these protections, lifting itself upon the moss and crashing through the wooden gates. Sometimes it set itself on a rampage through the village, eating livestock. Then, as these dwindled, it began to eat people. Some were chewed there and then. Others were dragged away, their piteous screams heard at night from beyond the forest. These fitful, horrific visits exhausted all the villagers' attempts at defence and resistance. The giant was too powerful. Food stocks were running dry, and the heavy loads of grief and fear undid them. It seemed a hopeless situation. Though the giants could be absent for weeks at a time, no one ventured from the village enclosure. The surrounding farmland fell to ruin. The irrigation systems dried up. The seasons were no longer measured in sowing and reaping, but in repeated slaughter. One visitation after the creature had had its bloody fill, a deaf mute of the village was seen descending the walls by rope. He walked some way from the compound and, taking up an abandoned spade, began to dig. The villagers shouted to him, but of course he could not hear. They waved and made signs to him, but he would not look. What more could they do? They dared not stray outside, so they left him to his fate. It'll be his own fault, they said to one another, and what would really be the loss? He has no family, no friends. He was a poor village idiot at that, with an air more melancholy than entertaining. All the better then, for as feed for the giant, perhaps he would avert its grotesque hunger from another more sensible, useful soul. The deaf-mute kept digging. As the days went by, the villagers watched him from the ramparts. He neither returned home nor acknowledged them. All he did was dig, and in the same spot. What's he doing? They would say. That hole is too deep to be a grave now, and whom does he wish to bury? Himself, soon enough. Save your pity for those who wish to live. Starvation set in. The villagers began to boil their clothes in order to eat them. Children gnawed on woods to abate hunger. Many succumbed to eating dirt. And still, the deaf-mute continued to dig. They eyed him, saying, He must be tilling the soil for food. But he is a fool, for whatever he plants, the giant will eat. As for what he finds in the ground, such vegetation will only plump him up for the giant's belly. Yet he continued to dig the hole. He ate the scraggly roots he found. Worms and other morsels pulled from the earth. The villagers began to envy him. Then the giant returned. It broke through the gates and made for the congregation cowering in the chapel. The bells rang out as the priest was pulled from the campanile ropes and swallowed whole. All told, twenty people were eaten that day. But as the giant was leaving the village, it caught sight of the deaf mute digging his hole. It stopped, and as the villagers watched from the walls, it gave them to think it was capable of some order of contemplation, for it looked at the deaf mute strangely. Then, neither from perplexity or simple satiation, it moved on 
leaving the deaf-mute, who had not looked up for one moment, but unerringly, strenuously, kept shifting the earth from his hold. He's making a well deep enough to hide in, said some of the villagers. That is why the giant did not see him. The monster did see him, said another, for its countenance changed. It was trying to understand, I swear it. That deaf mute is a fool. He has no brain for any plan. He believes he can dig to the other seam of earth and thereby escape the monster. Let him dig his way to Tartarus. He'll be there soon enough when the giant comes back. The deaf mute seemed only to apply his effort more. The hole was very deep. The blacksmith, a man of noted avarice, suspected the deaf mute was treasure hunting. Perhaps he intended to buy off the giant. Perhaps the deaf mute had a secret. But surely no treasure could be buried so deep. And what did the giant care for gold? The carpenter looked at the mountain of earth growing next to the hole. He laughed at the deaf mute, supposing him to be building higher ground. However tall he builds it, he told the woodsman, the giant will climb it. He'll not be safe if he raise that sod to God himself. And if he totter from it and fall, he'll be straight to the devil anyway. The deaf mute sweated unceasingly with his hole. Deeper and deeper, the extracted soil revealed different shades as he dug through the layers. Common opinion returned to its origin. The deaf mute was, as everyone had always known, a simpleton. And his endeavour, whatever it was, was mere madness. He had, it was agreed, lost what little mind he had. And the giant returned once more. At its roar, the villagers ran for cover, under wheelbarrows, in the cesspit, wrapping themselves in foliage in an attempt of camouflage. The creature raised its fists, pummeling its chest with the unholy thunder of an approaching army laying its huge hands on the village gates, which the inhabitants had uh, once again pathetically repaired. The giant made to rip them from the walls, but at that very moment was distracted by the deaf mute crawling from its hole. Flecked with mud, the remainder of his soiled clothing in tatters, the deaf mute lurched towards the giant and locked him in combat. The villagers emerged from their hiding places gathering at the ramparts to see what was going on. A god, they witnessed the deaf-mute wrestling with the beast. They fought till sundown. As Helios's brow fell beneath the horizon, the moon took its turn to illuminate the mortal contest, and not a villager said a word. Stunned, they held their breath until, at length, and in an abrupt counter-move, the deaf-mute twisted the giant's head with a loud crack that blew all the forest birds from their perches. Silence. Then cries and weeping. The villagers raised a cheer at last. In joy and relief, they shouted out the name of the deaf mute. He got back to his feet, covered in wounds and welts, exhausted and steaming in the cool night air. It was only then, as the moonlight caught the sweat on his powerful arms, his broad shoulders, his solid chest, his muscular hands, his sinewy thighs, that the villagers finally saw and understood what mighty strength the constant digging had given him. He picked up his spade, limped to the gates, 
and hammered to be let back in. As time went by, the things renewed themselves. This tale was told over and over. Long after the event, when nearly all witnesses had been peacefully planted in the cemetery, it remained a shibboleth to those people. A piece of wisdom taught to all children. A warning to those that dared to presume. A fable, as we would have it now. The rhymes and reasons, ways and means of men, are not always what they seem. By strange and personal measures do we fortify ourselves against monsters. Thank you, Jim. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be The Doctor's Back by Tom Heaton. We read by Greg Page. Tom's work has been published or performed by Dreamcatcher, Liars League, and Shaker Productions, and is forthcoming in Comfinger. He has written scripts and worked on story developments for numerous video games. Age six, Greg was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. A critic recently compared Greg to the late Sir Alec Guinness, saying, Sir Alec Guinness was a much better actor. <laughs> Greg! <laughs> the Doctor's Back by Tom Heaton. by such a, a fine bag. It's a, it's a doctor's bag, officer. Classic design. Opens at the top. Surprisingly capacious. I, I, I got it off Richardson, officer. It was his bag. Richardson? Ah, now. Oh. I, I first met Richardson uh, I, either in contemplation in his cosy place beneath the flyover or uh, in the lovely park by the river with views over the bridge or uh, possibly in the dove or the ship. I, I, I can't remember exactly because at the time I, I had an acute case of alcohol poisoning <laughs> brought on, I believe, by a bad pint served at me at one of those hostelries. And my memories of the subsequent events was permanently affected. But even then, you could tell that Richardson was a man of means. And the bag marked him out particularly in that regard. He cared for it meticulously with spit and cream, so well, even now it, it, it looks almost new. He used to organise and maintain his selection of medicines, both prescribed and available over the counter, or acquired by fair and equal exchange with other invalids, the terms settled in advance by both parties. Richardson himself possessed medical knowledge, 
and, and was happy to dispense from his bag according to want and virtue of the sickly individual, making his diagnosis with the aid of uh, fold-out paper instructions included in the packets containing the pills. You're all written on the back of the bottles. He was a fine fellow, but he took unkindly to us calling him Doctor, because he said he was not thus qualified, <laughs> and qualifications were important, the mark of the professional. And if he had his wife again, he would strive to obtain them in the first instance and profit from them. And in the second instance, he would encourage any youth into whose circle he should happen to venture to do likewise and with all the vigour and their tender years allowed them. Hmm? This speech he gave um, more than once. <coughs> Often, in fact. <sighs> it, it, it was our habit so when, when the rain held off to occupy a bench in the park and survey the activity uh, on the river and by way of entertainment to make uh, remarks of a personal nature about passers-by. Mm. I might say of a skateboarder. I don't think he went to a very good school. <laughs> and Richardson, taking the angle of the skateboarder's hat, which was, of course, reversed, might well concur. Yeah? You can see it in his bearing. The subtle things. I fear he won't amount to much, I'd say. And Richardson would merely sniff at that, the matter being now beneath him. On this occasion, his attention had shifted to a lady pushing a pram, one of our regulars, as we called them. She's putting on a bit, he said. <laughs> waddle, waddle! I remarked, I always endeavoured to make Richardson laugh. Time to lay off the pies, darling, enjoined Richardson. And there followed an altercation, as was not uncommon. For it sometimes happened that conversation intended to be private between us was intersected by prying ears. And many people do not like to hear a frank assessment of their particular failings. <laughs> Richardson was ill. He had a type of, of gangrene of the arm, starting at the elbow and extending to the wrist, entirely wrapped in bandages that he got changed fortnightly by appointment at the Hammersmith Hospital. This was necessary because the dressings became hard and encrusted with a yellow pus as thick as egg yolk that Richardson assured me existed beneath them. And the arm emitted a smell of pure ammonia, for reasons of which he was not allowed inside any of the pubs along the riverbank. The summer laughed, his condition deteriorated. The change in him was marked. His face became drawn sallow, skin was afflicted by open sores and strange dark scabs which peeled at the edges but which would not detach. His hair, which had been full and, and luxuriant, 
come out in clumps. His breath was rasping and wheezy, especially when he smoked. <laughs> it was no surprise to us when his visits to the hospital became weekly and, and then every second day. It was plain that he was dying, and quickly. But he would not hear of it, and railed against us, and accused us of jealousy, and told us that we should be ashamed. Eventually, he did not return from the hospital at all, and I took it upon myself to visit him. I had some inconvenience in gaining entry to the building, because a uniformed gentleman at the door took offence to me and barred my way. Even when I persuaded him that I had genuine business on one of the wards, he insisted that I first discard the can of beer I was carrying, <laughs> or to fortify myself against the possibility of grief, and that I stub out my cigarette. Well, this having been done, I was accompanied like a common criminal, right to Richardson's bedside. And the impudent fellow, heavily with power, bestowed by the embroidered badge on his starched shirt, insisted on staying in the ward for the entire duration of my visit. Richardson could not contain his delight at seeing me. They're all shits in here, <laughs> he declared, making several heads look up sharply, which manoeuvre being clear indication that they were none of them quite as ill as they were pretending to be. <laughs> don't, don't, don't distress yourself, I counselled. I won't mask out much longer, said Richardson suddenly. Well, don't be fool, I told him. Oh, it was obvious his prognosis was sound. It was an effort for him even to move his head. And his skin seemed to have shrunk into his skull and his, his lips were dry and bloodless. Take my bag, he said. And with tremendous courage, he pointed to the cupboard beside the bed. It's a good bag. I looked after it as well as I can. Uh, a bottle of leather cream, a rag inside, must be applied weekly. Small dab, rubbed in thoroughly. Then spit on the bag and rub that in too. That'll keep it waterproof, looking spick. Come on, old chap, I say. You'll be as right as rain and out of here by next Wednesday. Take the bag, he said. You're a fine friend, and you're a decent fellow. I don't want this bag going to some high polite who won't polish it properly. So I took the bag, and within a day, Richardson had died. Hospital couldn't contact us. So we weren't informed about the funeral arrangements. But as a consequence, I understand the ceremony was 
very sparsely attended. That's how I came by the bag, officer. I know Dr. Serner, and I'm not, not like Richardson. But myself, oh, I sparse you like so. I, I keep my scribblings in bag. I, I, I hope one day to find an understanding and discerning soul who will publish them. A pen and a wad of paper, sir, and I am the richest man alive. Put your heart at ease, officer. This, this bag was not acquired by common theft, but was given to me as the free and final action of one of the noblest men that ever lived. <laughs> Which epistolary novel, long word, 
describes the ruin of a young woman at the hands of the rakish Yes. Uh, she is in shoes. Oh, disaster too soon. No, sorry, over there. The disaster. Yes, yes. Clarissa. <gasps> yes, well done. Clarissa by Samuel Richardson and the name of the rake was obvious. Uh, which story would you like? Which of the three books? Which one? St. Albans. St. Albans. Good choice, yes, absolutely. Okay, second question. Hands at the ready. D's on your lips. Which novel featuring Paul Pennyfeather launches oh, uh, Yes, yes, the back. Decline and fall. Yay! Shall <laughs> I read the rest of the question? You all know about this ruinous literature. Launched a young Evelyn War on literary fame and fortune. Decline and fall. Which of the two would you like? Serious things. Serious things. Excellent choice. Oh, I recommend it. Okay. Uh, we've got a poetry question now. Mm, prepare your clever hats. Um, which poem begins? Although it's quite an easy one, to be fair. I met a traveller from an antique. Okay, alright, so I Ozymandias. by. Bonus points. Oh, Yes, well done. Well done. So, you have the Graham Slip. We had many more questions, but you're far too clever for us. his second. Suzanne Goldberg's theatre credits include Macbeth, National Tour, Miniaturists, Arcola Theatre, A Big Day for the Goldbergs, New Ends Theatre, Soho Street, Soho Theatre, The Cherry Orchard at the Greenwich Playhouse, and Suzanne regularly narrates for RNIB Talking Books. She has just got back from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro wow. for Great Ormond Street Hospital. Preoccupations. 
since they found out that I have stage four ovarian cancer. I now define life by how shrewd our coping mechanisms are and death by the elegance of our exit strategy. It was only a week ago I received my diagnosis. I thought I was bloated or perhaps had an irritable bowel, but the cancer has already spread to my lungs and I have only months or weeks left. Since then I've done nothing, I've told no one, not even my husband or our two girls. I am paralyzed in suspension. When I do tell them, I'll need a contingency plan, a way of acting which suits all of us. I haven't yet decided which identity to assume, whether I'll be the fighter, an acceptor, or a quitter on the plane to Switzerland. There are too many things to consider, and worst of all, that I feel like a goldfish with dropsy. I don't envy the thing much, just that it has clove oil and vodka as a way out. I hear keys rattle in the lock, and my husband and daughters come in. Hey girls, how's swimming? I call through. The reply is sobbing, and its perpetrators stumble through to the kitchen, dripping rain and leaking tears. They look even younger than I remember. Mum, what's wrong with Rihanna? Our eldest asks. It was their choice of name, not ours. <laughs> Dad says she, she's going to burst, says our youngest. She was devastated when Postman Pat got lost in the fog, so I dread to even look at her as she weeps. Dad said what? I shoot my husband, daggers as he comes through. I've already lost control of the evening. No, sweetie, she's not going to burst. She's just unwell, so... We need to say goodbye. You said we should tell them, he mouths, that it'd be fine. What I really said was that I should tell them, which I still think trumps his ingenious idea of claiming Rihanna had gone on tour. <laughs> so I scoop up my blubbering girl with one arm, take my husband aside with another, and keep one eye on the eldest as she goes to inspect the tank using my clearest English, like I am manning an information desk, I explain to him that you can't just blurt things out. Some issues need to be guided through with seriousness and tact. He only replies with a smile. Ah, so you don't want fish and chips for tea then? <laughs> Levity is a man's only coping me mechanism. That's what I pity the girls for when I'm gone. That and the awful dinners he will make them, and the bra shopping they will miss. I sigh. If you're not going to be sensible, then at least be useful. Did you get the clove oil? He takes it from his bag, and we congregate around the tank as my daughter muses in her mature way that the fish looks like a lead balloon. I explain that it's just one of the symptoms of dropsy and that she isn't in too much pain, although all available evidence disagrees with me. Looking at the creature, lying on the gravel bed beside the novelty treasure chest and water plant, I wonder if fish are aware of their mortality, in the way that dogs and cats are supposed to be. And if so, what would it 
select from the menu of options for fish euthanasia, which I'd browsed through earlier, like a restaurant goer. Decapitation, <laughs> freezing, flushing, or clove oil and vodka. Maybe it's best to trust yourself to a beneficent god, such as I was to the fish at that time. I've already assembled the various instruments and the apparatus we need, and using my instructions, I begin this strange and uncanny ritual, as if euthanizing and exhuming myself. Opening the tank's lid, flooding the room with halogen light, I scoop a bowl full of water, coaxing the fish up into it by creating gentle currents. When I put the bowl on the table, the fish rolls barrel-like in the settling liquid, upside down, back to front, round and round, displaying a complete lack of control. I take the clove oil bottle, feeling more and more like a steely surgeon instructing, instructing a lecture hall, albeit a juvenile one. Our instrument of sedation today is the essential oil of the clove plant, Syzygium aromaticum, which is commonly used as a home remedy for toothache, but in this case will anaesthetise the patient, and which will be administered from a small apothecary bottle with a pink nipple. But then I make the mistake of breathing deeply in the thick aroma of clove oil. And as I taste its peppery warmth, I'm teleported back to studding oranges to make pomanders at Christmas, to the aromatic bath oils I used to indulge in before having kids. I add five drops to the bowl, giving the water a ghostly milkiness. After a while, as the sun finally expires and the horizon is sealed shut by night, the fish falls asleep, its gills sculling only very occasionally. It lies there with such a wholesome stillness that I see it momentarily as a monk deep in meditation. I try to imagine that far down in its pea-sized unconscious is a serene place where life and death are being contemplated, but the notion won't stick. Instead, I oblige by seeing the fish's life flash before my own eyes. It's a vignette which mainly consists of gormless gawping and cruising plankton-like from wall to wall. But perhaps that's what my family would look like if you observed us from the street. Is that it? asked my husband. Time for tea, girls. No, that's not it, I say with an irritation that surprises me. That's her asleep for a few minutes, but it's the vodka that kills her, like poison. Then we have to bin her, because if we flush her, she might compromise the local ecosystem. I've read up on it. Perhaps I feel a bit betrayed that the one man who is supposed to console me in, into the afterlife can't recognize the difference between peaceful sleep and eternal death. Contemplating that thought a little furiously, as is a woman's want, I take the vodka bottle in my hand. Drowned in vodka, he says. Not a bad way to go. And yet, I just realised that this liquid may as well be an axe, a guillotine, a noose, or any other tool we have for the snuffing out of life. It is bizarre to recall the manifold ways in which we can perish. In this scene, with my husband and children perched at the table side, ready for the ultimate act, I see all of my family and friends stood around my grave in their three faces, cast glowingly in the bright white light of the fish tank, I see curiosity and sadness. But 
I also see excitement and anticipation, the sort people exhibit when watching swimming galas or playing cards, and it makes me wonder if there is a thrill in death. Voyeurism. The vodka dissipates silently into the clover concoction, like a deadly veil closing over the fish. I don't know whether expecting I expected any thrashing or gagging, but I, I do feel a certain disappointment as the fish remains entirely unchanged. I tell the room, which by now has become my science classroom, filled with eager pupils, that when the vodka drowns the lungs, the gills will cease moving. I explain again, this time more as a family vet, that once you notice dropsy in your goldfish, then it's often too late, and that it's a fairly common affliction in fish, and that the owners have done nothing wrong, nor is there any explanation to why it happens, save for an act of God, or in secular terms, an unforeseeable inevitability. I am convincing as an objective judge. My eldest, of course, is all nods and comprehension, as if these events are simply a trigger, allowing her to recollect a long-held but uh, repressed perspective. I hope she will retain this imperturbable way. As I whisper that it's done, my youngest lets out a blubbering tide. And now I'm sure that she's too young for this. I extract the fish with a spoon, birthing it into the cold air. How funny that I wince when it breaches the surface, remembering the chill that catches your skin when you come back to shore from swimming in the sea. I'm clearly a fool for empathy, which wouldn't do for the next stage, consisting of depositing the thing in the communal bin. I wrap myself in an oversized cardigan, stand into my slippers and take the little plastic bag down to the bins, wrapping a knot in it as if sealing a coffin. It's a mild night and the warm orange glow from the streetlights laps around me like water. I pause as I open the rubbish bin lid, wondering inexplicably if there is any sort of recycling protocol to follow in this situation. Then I catch myself with deeper thinking. For example, I've recently wondered why we put our children through it at all. Are they their children? Try your best to build contingencies and strategies to use protocols. But it does boil down to decay. It comes back to a word I learnt at school, but never understood until recent weeks. Attrition. I've looked it up for you. Attrition, noun. The process of gradually reducing the strength or effectiveness of someone or something through sustained attack or pressure. Welcome to life! <laughs> the bin lid clapped shut in sudden brief applause. And yet, after that particular bout of melodrama and self-pity, I look up at the dad and kids having a cuddle, a kiss and teary laughter, and in spite of myself I see a scene befitting the Waltons and I feel grateful. My emotions are a heart monitor spiking and dropping. I walk in, shed my jumper and disengage my slippers like lifeboats releasing from their slipway. All in one? My husband asks, checking the golf on TV. In one, I say, and I want to add, but will you be this flippant when it's me? Would I prefer it that way? But now, here is the uncanny crux of the situation. I haven't cried once since the doctor sealed my future shut. Not 
when I thought about the girls' lives without me, nor about my husband outliving me by 30 or 40 years, nor even during the extravagant bouts of morbidity that you've just witnessed. So why is it that when I look over and see that the new family companion is now a tank of pet water, I burst uncontrollably into tears? And wherever it is, it acts as an impressive catalyst, sparking a logical chain of reactions and questions from my family. What's wrong? And it'll be all right. All of which progresses me step by step, closer to my grave. I turn my face towards them and hear my voice distantly as, at last, it explains, reassures, and asks calmly for a fragrant and poetic death, worthy of a fish. between two sisters. You were the only boy, but you were never good enough, never clever enough, never strong enough, never man enough. Four years of age, when your father took a belt and beat you with it, your earliest memory. Four, one, fingers and a thumb, curled into a fist when there weren't any belts or brooms or shoes to hand. You counted each bruise, wore them as badges of shame, the blood soaking deeper each time. Four, one. Fingers and a thumb squeezed beneath your underwear where they weren't supposed to be. But you couldn't say stop and there was no one you could tell stuck in a truck with a friend of the family while he did things to you that you didn't understand. Nine. Times you blacked out as a child, disrupting your schooling and sometimes requiring hospital treatment. The doctors didn't know why it was happening. 
But your father knew the truth. You are making it all up. Three. Months spent working as a mortuary attendant after you ran away from home. You slept behind the embalming room, dreaming in amongst the dead. One evening, you crept inside a coffin and embraced the corpse of a young man. You left the job and drove home the next day. Nine months you spent courting your first wife. To her, you were diligent, hardworking, an upstanding, respectable member of society. For a time, you were happy together. Three, fried chicken restaurants bought by your father-in-law, an offering of provision, an olive branch. You managed them well. Fifteen years, the age of the victim of your first known sexual offense. You're abused, exploited, blackmailed, seduced him. He couldn't fight back, but he had the courage to tell someone. Three hundred dollars paid to one of your employees for a special assignment. You told him where to find your accuser to beat him into submission. Seventeen days, the time it took for the doctors to diagnose you with anti-social personality disorder. Ten years, the length of your sentence. On the day you were convicted, your wife petitioned for divorce. Inside, you were the model inmate, towing the line, even running the JC group. It flourished under your leadership. Three twentieths, the fraction of your sentence you actually served. Two days, the time between your father's death and when you found out. You broke down in prison, begged for compassionate leave to go to the funeral. They refused. 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, the home you shared with your second wife, the land you would transform into a burial site. Eight. The times you plunged the knife into the first boy's chest. You thought he was attacking you, so you defended yourself. You went too far, but it felt good. It made you feel things you never felt before. Two. Places set at the breakfast table that morning. He had been using a knife to slice bread and bacon. You left the places unused and unattended while you dragged the body into the crawl space. 1972 to 1978, the span of your career. 29, bodies found under your house, 
strangled, buried in dirt and mud, quicklime and cement. You use boys from your chicken business to dig the graves because you couldn't be bothered to do it yourself. Four. More bodies dumped in the this plains river. Nineteen. The average age. Twelve twenty-two seventy-eight. The date of your confession. Three hundred hours time you spent in psychiatric evaluation. Four hours the duration of the prosecution's closing statements. Two hours the time needed for the jury to make their decision. Fourteen years spent on death row with appeal after appeal, process and procedure droning on and on. You knew they were all wrong, and you studied the legal documents yourself, trying to find the flaws in the case. Eighteen minutes, the time it took for them to kill you. It should have been less. But they botched the job, fumbling with straps, tubes, toxic chemicals. Three words, the last you ever spoke. Kiss my ass. Zero, the fucks you gave. Zero the apologies you made. Zero, the abnormalities found when they studied your brain. X, the reasons why. finishing a collection of short stories and working on a novel set in 21st century London. Write what you know. Rich Keeble has appeared in a number of TV shows, voiced several commercials, video games, animations and audiobooks, performed stand-up and improv at the Edinburgh Fringe and even toured as a musician. He's probably most recognised as the bloke on the hippo in the top hashback and you can find his website at richkeeble.com. Rich. Tiny Ball Patch by Pascal O'Hara. The problem with people, Xavier Frutiger believes, is we're also horribly sensitive. Well, Perhaps that was a little melodramatic, but there was no denying Frutiger had suffered at the hands of his own sensitive nature. And it had all started with three little words thrown at Frutiger with the carefree whim of 
someone who couldn't possibly believe a few syllables could dissolve the foundations of a man's life. <laughs> Clipped a bit. What's that, Benz? Fruitage asked, turning to a colleague. You clipped a bit. What do you mean? Where? Up the top. At the back. Where? I can't feel it. I'll get over it. It'll grow back, Fruitager. In no time, you'll see. What an idiot, Fruitager thought. He'd been cutting his own hair for years and he knew he always did a good job. By the time Frutiger was on the bus on the way home, he was a million miles from that idiot Banks and his stupid comment. It was a Friday evening, and he was in an exquisite mood. It was the last Friday of the month, the one day when Frutiger and Edith made a point of staying home and drinking cocktails. Soon enough, the Friday drinks were in full swing, and Frutiger and Edith were both entangled in the other's limbs on the sofa, enjoying each other's company in that way only drunk lovers can. <laughs> in a pause between laughter, Edith said this. Oh, uh, and I haven't even asked you how your day was. Frutiger replied that it was okay, etc. And it was then, as his mind preceded the day's events, that he recalled those three little words. Hey, Edith. Yes? Have I clipped a bit? <laughs> Frutiger drew his head right down in front of Edith, so close that his hair tickled her nose. What? When you cut your hair? Yes. That clown Banks was giving me grief about it. Let me look. No, no, it's, it's just your crown. Huh? The crown, you know. Your, your hair is thin around that area. Like a tiny ball patch. <laughs> a tiny what? <laughs> ball patch. You're saying I have a ball patch? No, I'm saying I have a crown. You're saying I have a crown that looks like a ball patch? A tiny one. All Big ball patches were once tiny ball patches. <laughs> Look, darling, everyone has a crown. Don't be silly. Well, let's see yours. Frutiger rummaged around in Edith's impossibly thick hair. You don't have a tiny ball patch, Frutiger reported. Okay, but my hair is really thick, silly. Stop calling me silly. And don't be so boastful. <laughs> you shouldn't have lied about everyone having a tiny ball patch. <laughs> Honestly. Conscious that he was being what could only be described as silly, Fruity had tried to be casual as he wandered upstairs to the bedroom. Holding Edith's makeup mirror behind his head and craning towards the dresser mirror, Fruity had tried to catch a reflection of his tiny ball patch. At first, the mirror reflected nothing but a dark mass of hair, but before long he had worked himself and the mirrors into a combination of angles that revealed different results. Frutiger dropped the makeup mirror and walked downstairs as if he was sleepwalking. It's true. 
What's this, darling? The tiny ball patch. <laughs> it has begun. <laughs> Before long, Fruity Doom was back upstairs, checking and rechecking, using different mirrors and combing his hair in various partings. He evaluated the results by taking photos on his mobile phone and recording several short films. <laughs> the findings were inconclusive. Fruity just started taking the back seat on the bus ride to and from work, as this vantage point allowed him to examine all the crowns and ball patches, <laughs> tiny and large, jiggling to the movement of the bus. For some, he noted the terror stretching out from the crown, attacking all borders, leaving nothing but a monk's halo of coarse grey. For others, the damage was wrought from the corners of the forehead, slashing inroads and leaving a lonesome jetty of hair. <laughs> but the most interesting of all were the borderline cases. Was that boy cursed with painfully thin hair? Or were his follicles already shriveling up and choking the life of his lank wisps? Was that man's forehead large by way of genetics? Or was his hairline slowly retreating from his eyebrows as if in disgust? <laughs> and if so, how long before time pulled all the hairs from his head and pushed them back through his ears and nose? <laughs> <laughs> For the next few weeks, Fruitage's mind was almost solely preoccupied with thoughts of his impending baldness. After Edith's early dismissal of his condition, he kept his thoughts to himself. The harbouring of unspoken anxieties manifested itself in petty nastiness, and Fruitage increasingly found himself in curt moods and pointless arguments. He knew that his relationship with Edith had been suffering, so after one particularly tense week, he resolved to make it right with her and suggest an impromptu evening of cocktails. Standing outside his front door, he paused before turning the key, preparing himself to soar to new levels of charisma and gentlemanly consideration Edith had never known before. <laughs> ah, it's good to be home. As Frutiger slid his coat from his back, he could, hear a, he could hear a shuffling noise from the lounge, but no answer came. What a day! Looking forward to a strong drink, that's for sure. Brutiger <laughs> kicked off his shoes by the door and threw down his bag. He walked into the lounge and found Edith at the dinner table, sitting opposite an unfamiliar man. The plasticine smile on Brutiger's face began to droop. He looked like Banks, but with the addition of a ponytail. Oh, hi, darling. Uh, this is Jason, from work. Hi. Hi. We're just catching up some work away from the stuffy office. Uh, you don't mind, do you? Why would I? And he fruited his head. This is Jason. Jason? What kind of name is Jason? <laughs> Sounds like you had a bad day? No? No, not really. Just, you know. Well. I think I may go to the pub for a bit. Leave you two at it. Oh, we're not going to be at... No, don't worry, yeah, it's fine. Don't be silly. I'm not being silly. <laughs> well, okay then. 
by Jason. Cruiser knew he had pulled a face as he said, Jason. <laughs> Bye. Jason said. Bye. He just said. Bye. <laughs> the silence from the lounge was choking Frutiger as he struggled to put his shoes and coat back on in the quickest time possible. All the time trying not to sound like he was putting his shoes and coat on in the quickest time possible. Shouldn't have taken my shoes off at the door, Frutiger thought, like a damn child. As soon as he was outside, Frutiger wasted no time in judging Jason a sleaze and born womanizer, <laughs> using Jason's ponytail as the empirical evidence of his theory. <laughs> it was clear, beyond all doubt, no rational human could deny it, Edith was sleeping with Jason. <laughs> For the days and weeks that followed, memories of the shoeless encounter with Jason harried Frutiger. When he wasn't in front of a mirror examining his tiny ball patch, Brutiger was praying that Jason's own tiny ball patch would soon devour its surroundings and his ponytail would drop from his head like the final leaf falling from a withered tree. These <laughs> obsessions dominated Brutiger to the point where life outside of them seemed irrelevant and obtrusive. His working life was suffering hopelessly as he could no longer resist trips to the toilet to examine the density of his hair follicles or the height of his hairline. Colleagues commented on Frutiger's disappearances to the toilet and a newly acquired passive aggressiveness. At first it was infrequent jests, but soon it became a constant source of irritated intrigue through the corridors and stairwells of the workplace. Of course, it had to be Banks who gave Frutiger the ominous news. Frutiger was coming out of the toilet when he bumped into Banks on his way in. It felt like Banks had been standing there, waiting for Frutiger to come out, practicing that knowing little grin. Oh, Frutiger, what a surprise. What is? Nothing. Right, well then, Dawson wants to see you in his office first thing tomorrow. Why? I can't imagine. As he sat at the back of the bus on the way home, Frutiger felt the crushing pressure of the unfathomable depths his spirits had sunk to. It was then that he remembered it for the last Friday of the month, and a tiny wave of happiness tingled through his body. The bus passed the supermarket, and Frutiger rang the bell. Tonight he would create the finest cocktails Edith had ever tasted. Wandering through the spirit section of the supermarket, Frutiger turned a corner and came face to face with a woman. A woman going bald, and there was no mistaking it for a prominent crown. Her brittle orange hair was parted down the middle of her head by a stretch of lifeless scalp where not even the frailest downy strand of fluff was allowed to flourish. The concept of a balding female had never occurred to Frutiger in all his musings on hair loss. This was against the rules, surely, Frutiger thought. The unfortunate woman bent to pick a bottle off the bottom shelf, and the artificial supermarket lights ripped through what was left of her thin hair. Frutiger was overcome with empathy, and the urge to fall to his knees and hug this woman and cry out, Let us drink, drown our pain. Life is merciless. 
and before he knew it, he was on his knees, arms outstretched, ready to transfer every ounce of pity he could summon through one almighty physical embrace. The balding woman turned and nearly toppled backwards at the sight of this kneeling zombie's approach. She quickly scrambled to her feet, fear stifling her voice, and scurried down the aisle. By the time Fujiju was home, the shame of his own behaviour had all but left, overwhelmed by his desire to tell Edith what he had just seen. Before Edith could say hello, Fujiju began to babble excitedly, a precursor to the delivery of his fantastical story of the balding female that would surely amaze Edith. Well, anyway, that's all by the by. The point is, this woman was going bald. I mean, seriously, bald. It, it was like a lawnmower going down the middle of her head. Can you even... Stop. Just stop. What? Is it... You need help. <laughs> of course, she didn't mean it like that, Edith explained. But it was over, and Frutigil wasn't to try and convince her otherwise. Frutigil didn't go into work the next day. Dawson called the day after and told him not to come back. Naturally, there followed a period of intense neurosis and wallowing self-pity with no end in sight. But eventually, Frutiger found a new job. The woman at the recruitment agency, Lizzie, had found his story about the balding female funny. She also found him a job within the month. And on his first payday, she called Frutiger and told him, Now you can afford to take me out. It wasn't long before everything seemed to be looking up for Frutiger, and I guess you could say he was almost happy. Except, there was just this one thing troubling him. It was something Lizzie had said, an offhand comment was all it was, and it got him thinking about his skin. Frutiger had suffered from a little acne when he was younger, but he didn't think he necessarily had bad skin. And even Lizzie, who lots of people said had flawless skin, when you got up close enough, you could see tiny little blackhead spots in her nose that made you think of the skin of a strawberry. <laughs> I guess it depends, Bridget thought, perusing a pound shop selection of magnifying glasses, on how you look at it. Thank you very much, Rich. And thank you so much to all our fabulous authors and all our marvellous actors from tonight. Um, the next Liars League, should you have enjoyed this one and wish to do it again, um, is on Tuesday, 11th April, here at Phoenix. And believe it or not, we know we don't look it, but it is our 10th birthday. Yay! 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 We've been going on helpers since 2007. Back when iPhones were just a twinkle in the eye and you could smoke in pubs. <laughs> yeah, we were all in our early, early 20s. Let's say early 20s. Um, it is uh, going to be here. Uh, the uh, the deadline is closed, um, but 
The next deadline, if you are a writer and you do want to submit some work to us, is on Sunday, the 2nd of April, for our May theme, Cut and Thrust. Uh, we are so delighted to have ruined your night. Uh, we hope you will continue to descend into a hideous spiral of alcoholism and violence. Uh, as is only appropriate at this time, uh, you may have heard some noises coming from the gents, that's the sort of thing we're thinking about. Um, <laughs> And uh, we are pleased to have had you here and uh, to have been here ourselves. One more round of applause, please, for our wonderful host of the first half, Liam Hogan, our lovely authors, and our ruinous actors. Yay!